These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Serenity now, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And we gotta start asking, with all that we know about places like Walmart that become the one-stop shop for multinational subpar products, or corporate chain restaurants serving preservative-packed, calorie-loaded meals shipped by freezer truck from one side of the country to the other, why do we allow these places to hoover up all of our purchasing power when none of their products come from our local communities, and none of our neighbors, unfortunate enough to be stuck working there, are paid a living wage? It's the ultimate example of taking everything and giving nothing back. We wonder why there are no local stores or why half the country lives in drive through dominated food deserts, but the answer is pretty clear. We do not allow our capital to circulate locally. We fail to provide a supportive customer base for anyone who takes the chance to start a small business, and we end up with a thousand plastic things made in China owned by the same five companies, a food culture with no nutritional value that is slowly killing us, and a capstone cabal of Gates and Schwab foot soldiers that are more than willing to exacerbate our problems. Toxic dyes, pesticides, factory-contrived meat pastes, glyphosate-covered monocrops, and products designed to fall apart faster than you can use them. Isn't enough enough? Well, it is for today's guest, Texas Slim, who saw the writing on the wall when it comes to the quality and sustainability of our food, and founded the Beef Initiative. Grass-fed and grassroots, he's been putting in thousands of miles to go directly to what's left of sustainable agriculture-driven American ranchers and helping them retool to transform their businesses to bypass the bullshit and go direct to consumer. He's had a huge impact in just a short amount of time, planning conferences, building out the network, and introducing the world to those in line with the movement through the guests on his podcast, Texas Slim's Vision. He's on a mission to remind the people that we need sound food, sound money, and sound communication if we want a strong society, and I am psyched to throw my hat in the ring with him. The grass-fed beef boss, source of the seed seeker, and true warrior of the war on meat, Texas Slim, welcome to the higher side. Shit, that was pretty damn good. Well done. (laughs) 
Thank you for the introduction. I'd have to say that's probably the best introduction I've ever heard. Ah, so too kind. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on, man. This is I've been looking forward to this one. Yes, and I am psyched to have you here. I'm sure this audience is getting a little fatigued by all the food shows I've done lately, as they were with the COVID shows, but this is definitely the most important thing we have going on right now, and the work you're doing to bring ranchers together and provide the infrastructure for them to thrive and go direct to consumer nationwide is just so important, and I'm inspired by the passion and the effectiveness of what you've done in a short time. You wrote about this in The Harvest of Deception, but tell the people a bit more about what the Beef Initiative is and why you are uniquely positioned to be the guy to lead this charge. Yeah, I, I usually like to just start by, you know, who who is this dude that calls himself Texas Slim? And it comes by naturally. I grew up in small town Texas. You know, I'm a seventh generational Texan. And, you know, my ancestors, you know, helped pioneer up into the Texas panhandle you know, in the late 1800s, but we'd been down through Galveston way. We came down the Mississippi through, you know, the Gulf and then, you know, kind of went out to East Texas. And, you know, as time went on, we went up to the Texas Panhandle, which was Comanche land and last part of Texas that got basically established. And by saying that, you know, I know a lot about heritage. I know a lot about where food come from now and where it used to come from. I know stuff that like Texas was the first state to ever feed a nation, you know, here in the United States. And so I come from a strong agricultural and ranching background, either it be my family or it be where I was raised as, you know, dirt roads and, you know, Texas red dirt roads. <laughs> and whenever I was about 19, I went off to, I escaped the small town. And one of the reasons I left was because the agricultural debacle that happened in the eighties killed my small town. So here I am a teenager wanting to live life and basically stay on the farm, basically, you know, be the cowboy, be the rancher that, you know, I always wanted to be, but I had to escape the small town and I went to Austin. Ended up in Austin with about, you know, $120 in my pocket by the time I got there. And I was 19 years old and, you know, I, I didn't have an education. I wasn't formally educated, didn't have the money. Our family was pretty much poor. The land was gone in which my grandfather stewarded ever since, you know, the 1920s, I would say. And before that, his parents, it stewarded. But what I did is I fell into technology and throughout the years, you know, I became a research analyst. And so about three years ago, you know, saying that I was a, I was a cowboy, well, I got beat up pretty good as far as I had an injury, not beat up by somebody, but just work and stuff like that. I had an internal injury and I had to look at food again and I wanted to kind of rebuild myself. And so I dove down and I started getting into food intelligence and I used a lot of research skills and I started, I knew there was problems, you know, but a lot of people don't know where the problem is. And so I did a deep dive of, and, and I created this hashtag about food intelligence. It was probably about a year and a half ago, but I've been on the road. I've been studying things as far as industry, community food programs, public school programs, and I've been dissecting them. And the last three years, what I found was pretty scary. And what I know now is that we're going through a global industrial food shift and how they're going to orchestrate it and how they've already orchestrated it. And basically the hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds of billions of dollars really that have been spent to basically do this food shift. And so I knew that I had to, you know, kind of tell what the problem was, but I also had to create a solution. 
and that solution comes back to kind of how I was I was raised was a, a decentralized food system, a peer-to-peer transactional system, and something that was based on community programs instead of, you know, a global industrial food complex. So that's kind of like the quick and the short of it, but, you know, we can go deeper into it from there. I love it. And going deeper is the name of the game. I've heard you reference your grandfather in previous interviews and reference the history of ranchers in America, even saying they've been under attack since 1878, right on up to today. And you mentioned the economic debacle that happened in the 80s. Well, maybe you could elaborate a bit on some of the elements of this important history that people either might not know or might just not truly understand the effects of. And at least for the economic front, maybe even some possible solves that you guys are working on. You know, I, I talk a lot about Bitcoin and we leverage Bitcoin as a tool. And a lot of people that understand Bitcoin to the level that they need to, you know, a lot of things that we refer to, and I'll just start with this, is whenever we went off the gold standard in 1971, we debased our dollar, right? Well, what happened with that, if you debase your dollar, you debase everything around it. We debased our food supply. Our agricultural industry in the United States was dramatically debased at that same time. We evolved into a debt economy instead of something that was backed by some hard money, which was gold. And whenever we did that in the 1970s, we changed how we basically farm and ranched in the United States. You had a guy named Eric Butts. He was in the Nixon administration. He basically is quoted as saying, hey, you're going to go big or go home. We're going fence to fence with our crops now. And that's when we started monocropping. And he used this slogan, it's like, we're going to feed the world. And what he meant by that is that, hey, our dollar is debased and we got to make some new profits within our agricultural system. And so we're going to use all these new chemicals and these new types of seeds and these new types of farming and ranching to where we can make higher yields and we can actually feed more people across the world. But by saying that, we squeezed out basically our agricultural industry that had been exploited. You know, especially in the last hundred years, it was exploited during the 1920s, of course, with wheat, and then that led to the Dust Bowl. But in the 1970s, we got exploited dramatically because we really started introducing chemicals, herbicides, pesticides, genetically modified seeds into our agricultural system. And by the time we got to the 80s, we had farm aid. And that's when we really started, you know, a lot of people were liquidating at that time because we were going through basically a kind of a monetary reset because we were really adopting that debt economy. And so that hit the agricultural world really hard. You had, you know, Willie Nelson singing Farm Aid. You know, you had the savings and loan debacle of the 80s. Well, that was a direct result of us going off the gold standard in the 70s. And why we did that and when we did that we were changing basically the history of farming and ranching in the United States to where we started introducing what I call fake commodities into our consumption models and stuff like, you know, you started getting the seed oils, you started getting rapeseed, we started playing around with soybeans more, we started doing all kinds of different manipulations and injecting them into processed foods and we got very good at processing food. And so you had this industrial food shift that happened back then, and we're seeing it now, but this one's on steroids. Mm. That is a really great summary of a multi-decades-long problem. 
And let's elaborate on the Bitcoin thing, because that might have sounded a little out of left field for some people. I know you are good friends with Adam Curry. I was lucky enough to have him on here not long ago talking about podcasting 2.0 and value for value. And I often hear you talking about sound food, sound money and sound communications, as well as following the Bitcoin ethos as much as you can. What is that ethos and what can you say to help people see the connection between Bitcoin and what you're doing with beef? Sure. There's a lot of ways you look at it, right? The way I look at it is from my perspective, as far as being, you know, the founder of the Beef Initiative, ranching, agricultural, food, land, cows, everything. One thing that I always like to say, I think in, I was the same way in Bitcoin is like I looked at it the wrong way. You know, you compare it to what do you compare it to? Oh, the stock market or you compare it to the cryptocurrency shit coins. <laughs> you compare it to so many different things. What a lot of people don't understand that they should really look at it from the very beginning is the decentralized aspect of that. Whenever I was in big tech and doing research and analysis, what I was first was a networker, a computer networker. So I understand what decentralization means. And whenever you have a currency that is basically mined as Bitcoin is, as far as how it is created, it's created in a decentralized way, but it's also validated every 10 minutes on the block. TikTok next block, they say. So what it is, is it's a type of currency that we've never seen for is man because it actually does store value it does have transactional capabilities it does fight inflation it is a tool it is a protocol it is open sourced it is free to build on there's so many things that people really don't look at it because they're looking at it and comparing it to something like amazon or apple and it's just not. And so I try to lay that groundwork of really understanding what a store value is in our life anymore. What is money? You know, what is sound money? And if everybody looks at the United States dollar right now and says it's a good form of money, then they're not paying attention to how much they actually lost of their time spent working the last, let's say, three years. And so you look out, you know, we're going through hyperinflation at this time. Well, you can look at Bitcoin as basically a store of value that will fight hyperinflation and it's happening right in front of us right now. And people say, well, it's too volatile. No, it's not volatile. It's gone up 100%. It's lifespan for the last 11 years. And then I use the comparison and saying, well, you want to look at volatility. You know, I was in big tech. I was in dot-com boom days. I was younger and I was in innovation at that time. And you don't want to talk volatility. How about Amazon crashing over 80% over nine times in its history? That's volatile. Hmm. And you look at a stock like Apple where you couldn't even trade for it. It was against the law in Massachusetts to buy Apple stock. You know, you've looked at the stock market, you look at our financial systems and Bitcoin, a lot of people don't understand it because it gets a bad rap because what they're doing is they're doing a prohibition of really understanding what Bitcoin is because it is a decentralized currency that has a store value that we've never seen in a digital form. And, you know, you look at my grandfather, he understood what Bitcoin was. He just didn't have it. He understood what a store of value was. And he had that store of value in his land and the cattle itself. Well, that land and the cattle itself is not a store of value anymore. And it's been leveraged in a way to where it's more of a, you know, a tool that gets used against us with hyperinflation, with taxation, with asset reallocation. 
And Bitcoin is going to be a tool in the future that we can really leverage for our agricultural world as far as those farmers and ranchers not having a store of value or having a decentralized tool that they don't have to report. Bitcoin is property, and that's what people don't understand. It's a ledger. That's all it is. And so if you have property that you can leverage against hyperinflation and gets taxation that's, you know, that is basically is hyperinflation, then you can have a tool that is open sourced. It's not something that you have to go out and buy from. You don't have to have a financial advisor. You don't have all these centralized apparatuses kind of telling you how you should run your farm and your ranch. You, the rancher, get to do it just like your ancestors did. Community-based, open-sourced, crowd-funded, crowd-sourced, and it's a trial and error. You know, we go through adoption, and even within this year, you know, in the Beef Initiative, we've got ranchers now that are earning Bitcoin, they're storing it, they're using it as store of value, and they're growing their ranches by doing that because they're fighting inflation. Their beef prices are actually going down as beef prices in the supermarkets are going up. Mm-hmm. And they're using Bitcoin to leverage that type of price manipulation to where they can have that store of value and they can grow their herds instead of liquidate their herds. And so it's a learning experience. There's education involved, but I mean, we've evolved very fast. Right on. That's a great pitch. And you have proof of work in the ranchers already doing it. And I definitely want this to be way more about beef than Bitcoin. It is. And that's what I'd like to say too, really off the bat, not to interrupt you, but this is about beef. This is about saving the American rancher. Bitcoin is nothing but a tool, just like a screwdriver or a hammer. And that's something to be very clarify up, up, up front. This is not about shilling Bitcoin. This is about really getting awareness of what is going on with our American rancher, what's going on with our food supply, our nutrition, and you know what we can do to save them. Yes, yes. And it is about giving people an option. I mean, I'm not a Bitcoin skeptic. I've been using it since like 2014. But there are people who say to me, well, this is a ploy to onboard us into a central bank digital currency. And to that, I say, well, then don't use that. Just use Bitcoin and then you won't get onboarded into some other thing. And, you know, people worry about Bitcoin's reliance on the grid and there being no physical cash aspect to it. I kind of understand that. But hey, if the grid goes down, you think your bank account's safe? There's going to be a lot of problems if the grid goes down. So I don't know. And, And that's also probably a temporary concern that is... I don't know how realistic it is, honestly. I do think that maybe when the World Economic Forum says they're concerned about a cyber pandemic, that could be in the cards. But look, the the Canadian trucker protests should be all we have to cite to explain the need for a permissionless anonymous payment system. 100%. And, you know, once again, people compare and comparison is the thief of joy and happiness and basically progress. (laughs) And so whenever you compare, you know, something like Bitcoin to the grid going down, well, the grid's down. You need to be worrying about somebody else instead of just the, you know, or something else being the major issue in life. And, you know, that's where perspective comes in. And you got to lay that groundwork of perspective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can compare and you can look at things to saying, well, what if? Well, what if? Well, what, what about how about this is actually truly happening? This is the fact of the matter right now, and this is the tools that you have at your availability that you should probably be paying attention to instead of the deceptions and all the propaganda and the fear porn that are out there. Mm-hmm. Well said. 
And so let's talk about the need for the beef initiative. We both use the term war on meat a little bit lately. And yet I know so many people who think that's hyperbole or they just don't see any evidence of it. And the problems that have been in our food supply chain for the past couple decades, that's one thing. But help people understand that this is seriously ramping up. There is a, a level change going on here. And what would you cite for evidence that it is happening and they need to open their eyes? Sure. When we say there's a war on meat, people will think that they're going to get rid of the cow. They're not getting rid of the cow. They're going to eliminate your market access to that cow to the common man. And how they're going to do that is basically interject and inject a new fake commodity into the food system like they've already done many, many times over. And so when you look at the war on meat, it's a psychological war. It's something that they've been planning for a long time. They've tried to do it before. They've been doing it for a long time in this country. And people can look at it and you they have a sense of complacency, like you say, because it's always there. It's readily available. Yeah, meat prices go up and down, but they don't understand the global beef industry and who controls that. And so whenever you say a war on meat, well, they have basically labeled the cow as a carbon hazard now. You know, the WEF, the IMF, the United Nations, they're saying that it's bad for the climate. One, that's the biggest lie that they can perpetuate, and they're going to say it's causing climate change. Another psyop right there, which is complete bullshit, basically. And so whenever you look at how they're leveraging against the cow as far as the understanding of livestock overall, you can tell that basically what they're doing is they're designing this new fake commodity that they're injecting into the food supply. And so you look at right now, everything that's going on. I think I said on Adam's show last October or November, I said, you know, they're going to basically have a global marketing plan around fake meat. Well, that's here. We're seeing it. And then they're going to do something else. Well, what's that? Well, now they're talking about bugs, of course. And everybody looks at it and say, well, I'm not going to eat those damn bugs. Well, I'm not going to eat that fake steak. Well, that's not what they're, that's the distraction. And that's what people can't understand. And what they're doing here is they're making you look at like saying, well, you're going to buy steaks that are 3D printed or stem cell, or you're going to buy burgers that are pea protein or soy protein and bugs. And no, you're probably not going to, but you know, you're still eating those chicken tendies and you're still eating those pizza pockets and you're still eating uh, restaurant food and you're still eating all that industrial food. Guess what? That's going to be cricket dust. That is the new fake commodity that they're injecting into the food supply. They don't even have to tell you that they're doing it. And what's going to be absent in that food is going to be pure animal protein. And they're basically going to take the pure animal protein out of our consumption models especially in the Western countries. And where's all that beef going to go? Well, the beef is going to be sold to the highest bidder on the global market. We're still going to produce tons and tons and hundreds of tons of beef. You're just not going to have market access because they're going to turn beef into caviar and they're going to price it out of the common man's budget. The common man's going to say, well, I'll just have to consume something else. And that is the plan to have to do that. Well, who's driving that? Well, you've got the, the packers and the processors. We have four major global packer processors, JBS, National, Tyson, and Cargill. And basically, let's look at somebody like JBS. Well, 
they basically are one of the biggest investors in new processing centers that take the cow or the animal out of the processing center and basically process this new fake commodity. That's just kind of a, a good general over, you know, study of that and how the, you need to look at how they're actually, there is the war on meat, but it basically is got world-class marketing behind it. Plus it has world-class deception that we've already been seeing the last 50 years when they are putting all this fake commodity into our food systems that we all consume because we don't understand the labeling laws, how they've changed and how they can sneak this stuff into our food supplies without us even knowing it. And they'll say, hey, this is saving the planet. Mm -hmm. This is healthy for you. This is what little Johnny needs. <laughs> and they'll say, hey, it's got 14 grams of protein, but it really doesn't. And, you know, it, it's loaded with garbage. And that's why people need to start looking at this. It's commoditized, it's subsidized, and you are paying the price nutritionally and in the pocketbook. Yes, yes. And I really love that you make that point about those folks who say, well, I'm not eating the bugs or the 3D printed steak. But, you know, as you've said, this is nothing new. Almost 90% of Americans are obese or overweight. And many of us already eat so many factory products like chips and crackers and plastic packaged products full of hydrogenated soybean oil and all kinds of meat binders and high fructose corn syrup. So when they put insect powder in it, is that really going to be your line in the sand? I mean, come on. If they make it taste good, most people are just going to go along with it. Of course they are. They've proven that. And as you point out, you know, how have they proven it? Well, our consumption model has led us to where we're metabolically bankrupt. And this is a short period of time that they've done this. You know, everybody's looked at the pictures of the beach in 1969 and 1970, and then you look at the beach now. Man, you can't compare, man. You can't even look at it without saying there's an issue here. Well, how did we get there? Well, it's exactly what we've just been talking about the last 20 minutes, mm -hmm. it, and it's happening. And what sucks about it is it takes you to look at the accountability mirror. It's not a judgment, man. This is just an observation that is based on some real freaking facts that we need to change our consumer demand to something different that has been chemically engineered to taste good and to make our body treat it like it's a drug and that we have to have that next fix. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in terms of the bug thing and just retooling, all the processing plants, I think I heard Adam Curry mention this and it was really concerning. And I think he heard it from you, but apparently the food processing plants in America are already retooling and restructuring for the frankenmeat and insect based products. So it really is full steam ahead on this stuff because once the plants switch over their processes and change their systems, they're probably not going back. Are we really seeing that already? Yeah, on the industrial level, whenever I say a global industrial food shift, right, what does that mean? People don't understand what that means. Well, it's an industrial shift. All the equipment, all the technology, all the product, everything involved from the blueprint up changes. And, you know, everybody, I get all the, the conspiracies coming at me every day you know, 30 something, how many processing plants have gone up in fire, right? Right. Well, the way I look at it, and this is my subjective observation is that, you know, this is a good excuse for them to say, well, during COVID, 
we couldn't employ enough people. These became unsafe. And they always used the ploy of, we're going to keep you safer. You're going to make your food safer. And we're going to do something to your food where you can have more confidence. You know, and that's what they always do in the general mindset of the public. So what I see is that in global industrial food shift, basically they, they're taking the animal and the soil out of the processing plants. And whenever you have somebody like JBS, Cargill, National, and Tyson, the ones that are in charge of processing your meat proteins, and they're some of the biggest investors in the new processing centers that are coming, they're basically writing on the wall saying, we're not going to process as much meat. And especially whenever they're in the United States, that means your local, you, go, you drive through Arkansas, man, you want to see some processing centers going up that feed Walmart, every one of them, none of them have anything to do with animal protein. And so you take the technology, you advance the technology, you build it out with a debt that basically has no value. They got unlimited amount of money to basically transition out of this food consumption model which is already damaged and destroyed. And all they're going to do is basically stack it on a new layer of debt, of course, but actually of that fake commodity. And so you can't argue the fact that is what exactly is taking place. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have invested hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, really, in the last 10 years. This is just not something that was just thought up. And there's been four major consolidations on a global scale of corporations food corporations. The last one was 2017 and 18, and that's when they got their marching orders. And if you look at what's happened the last four years, they're ready to go. They're pulling the trigger. And whenever you look at freaking the Netherlands and the farmers having to fight for that land, that land is already gone and people don't realize it. And that's not taking anything away from what the farmers and ranchers are doing in the Netherlands. But they got plans for that land. This is asset reallocation that's based on a monetary reset here. And people need to wake up to it because their consumption model and their consumer demand is what is driving this. Yes. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be one of my questions I wanted to make sure we hit was how much of this is a land grab? You know, under the guise of safety and climate change, we hear about Bill Gates buying a ton of farmland in America but once a rancher loses their land and has to sell or they go bankrupt, they don't get it back. So we're now limited. We're kind of at the mercy of these big food companies. And that's another thing. This is kind of a greed play for Monopoly because once most of the freezer space in the grocery store is Frankenmeat or Impossible Burgers, that's not something an average person can produce. So you got these highly technical processes that average people can't duplicate. We are totally dependent on those big food companies because we won't be able to find the normal stuff anywhere. You can't get a pig, raise it, and slaughter it because that's actually illegal in most neighborhoods or it's against the HOA and all that kind of stuff. So if you're going to the grocery store for your food and only this highly technical frankenmeat is what's left, well, that's a total monopoly capture on food. But I'm getting sidetracked here. The land grab aspect. I mean, what what's motivating that? What do they want to do with this land? And why is this such a big deal that kind of goes a little bit under the radar with this whole agenda? Well, it's broad. Why are they doing what they're doing? Well, they're doing it so they can own the damn land. 
Right. I guess it's that simple. Okay. And then therefore, whenever they own the land, they can do whatever they want with that land. But whatever it is, it's basically, you know, reallocation. And you see this asset reallocation. A lot of people don't realize what that means. Whenever they print all the money that you look at 2008, that was somewhat of an asset reallocation in the residential housing market. Okay, you know, what did they do? They bailed it out and everything. Well, those guys that lost money got their money back. You know, people like Vanguard, BlackRock. What is Vanguard and BlackRock doing right now? Well, they're buying up residential areas in the United States to where they're buying tons and tons of residential real estate. Okay, well, what's going on with the actual the farms and the ranches and the farmland and everything that we have? Well, of course, Bill Gates. Well, he's one of the major investors in all the fake meat companies that have spawned. A lot of people don't realize a lot of this technology came out of Israel and they do a lot of startups. They have a lot of technology based around this. And so he's got a lot of shell companies that he hides under his uh, Cascade Investments, I believe it is. So the land grab has a lot of intentions, a lot of intentionality behind it. But that's, once again, you know, Gates is somewhat of the distraction. While that was happening, China went ahead and bought almost the same amount of land during COVID. And well, why would China do that? Well, they have billions of people to feed one, right? But then they can use our land to produce on our soil, and then they can commoditize and they can profiteer off of everything that is local to us, and they can take it over to China. They can actually, you know, that land that they have, they can leverage it for beef production, hog production, corn, wheat, whatever they need to do. And they don't have to sell it to the local communities in America. They already have an apparatus to where the distribution model is set up to sell globally anyway. So they leverage just something that is already developed and has been engineered the last 50 years to where if they can get that production model and the distribution model, they have the exact market access that they can leverage that makes us weaker, makes them stronger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't make more land. so No, they don't make more land. That's for sure. <laughs> if you can just get all the good land, you're going to win the game. And you mentioned the Netherlands. We keep hearing about a fertilizer shortage. We also hear about wheat problems due to what's going on in the Ukraine. Can you help us understand the domino effect of these things and the timeline as to when these shortages are going to be noticeable to most regular consumers? Sure. Let's look at, you know, how ammonia, uh, uric, there's certain things that are required to make fertilizer. Who makes fertilizer? Who makes ammonia? Well, you know, Eastern Europe, Russia, China, you know, they're the biggest suppliers of fertilizer, really, that there is. And so that got cut off a long time ago. Whenever I was on, I, I embedded myself in a harvest company last summer. I was there this time last year because I was doing a deep dive into the grain industry. And what I saw is like, we're in trouble here because what we were producing and, you know, the yields, we were in a drought a little bit last year and it's even worse this year. But whenever you have to rely on fertilizer to do your monocropping and a lot of ranchers use it to grow grass, you know, so they can regenerate farm and ranch or just graze their cattle because that's how cattle get started, of course, is on grass. So if you create a fertilizer shortage, well, what's next? If you don't have fertilizer, what do you use for fertilizer? Well, you use it for grass and use it for grains. And then if you can't grow your grains in a way to either feed your animals or feed your people, 
then there's going to be a domino effect that starts happening and it's not instantaneous. And with our short, you know, attention spans that we've now developed, you know, we don't understand a sequence of events that plays out on a global scale because it is a very large macro scale that we're looking at. You look at commodity prices, you look at the cost of fertilizer now. It used to be about 200 for, I think, a two-ton delivery of fertilizer. Well, now that's fourteen, twelve dollars to $1,400. Well, that farmer or rancher is going to say, I'm just not using it, man. I can't do it. I'm just not growing this year. And sometimes they'll get paid even not to plant their crops. So not having enough fertilizer, not growing enough grain, therefore you're not going to have the livestock. There's a sequence of events that plays out over a basically from a six-month to an 18-month window that what you do is you deplete your inventories of the products that you need to basically feed your societies. And it's coming. And there's going to be a prohibition against the market access to food. And it's going to be something that has been engineered. It's being engineered on purpose. And it's going to be a shock to the system. And whenever you have a shock to the system, that's whenever you basically introduce a new system. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the overall play to create this short-term food supply shortage or insecurity. And it'll play out across, you know, the world, of course. And then it'll play out in the cities. We don't know. Nobody knows exactly. But when it happens, it happens pretty quick. You can clean out a city within two to three days with food. And you look at the supply chain line breakdowns during COVID. You look how they're being reassessed. You look at the food industrial shift that is going on. That is part of it as well, is you create a little chaos and then you come in and then all of a sudden you're the savior. And whenever you take a food industry as we have it and you make it to where it's so subsidized, it's so centralized and it's so globalized, then it becomes something that's very cheap to produce and to transport. We're not out of food here, and we probably won't even get there. What we are out of, though, is having that market access to a good food supply system. That's what's going to be the hit, unless you understand who is producing your food and what your market access truly is or that you have options for it, then you're either going to be woken up very quickly or you're going to be very prepared. Mm. Yes, yes. It's very important to, as you say, go out and shake a rancher's hand and let them know you got their back so they can do what they need to do. And you'll have the comfort of knowing that you also have a good meat supply. But I'm hearing people say, I think I've had two previous guests who say they think this impact could come as soon as September or October of this year, do you think that's reasonable to suggest that like we'll see noticeable issues? We can't say how bad they'll be, but something clearly noticeable will hit us around Q4 of this year. Yeah, that's always been my target window last year. That's what I said back in October, November. I said it was going to be the fall of 2022 going into 2023. Mm. And, you know, yes, we will see it happen. It's going to happen in Europe for sure. I mean, you look at the Netherlands. Let's look at their food supply. They're the number two exporter of produce in the world. And, well, they're taking that land away from them. They're not producing as much. And so you'll see touch points across the world. You'll see famine this year. In the next 12 months, you will see famine in this world. Don't know where it'll be. And because of that famine, you'll see migration. 
So, yeah, I believe that basically the spark of what we're going to suffer through or that we're going to have to engineer our own personal lives through will be starting this year. Nobody knows, you know, and I'm not one of these persons that say it's definitive, but everybody that I do work with and I work with some of the same people that Adam does, and I've worked with some people that are actually out there right now and they say this shit is happening and that you don't mess with the people that tell us. But like I say, you know, this is what I hear. And as much as I know and what I've been doing the last three years, if I had, you know, if I had that damn gun to my head, I'd have to say, well, buckle up, buttercup, because here it comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems scary, but, you know, people who've been following this show, I have interviewed a rancher here and there for several years now trying to say, hey, why don't you just get your meet from this person. I've interviewed a West Coast, an East Coast, and a Midwestern rancher, all of which, between the three of them, cover the whole United States and their supply. And I know, of course, now you're doing so much in that regard as well. And I wanted to ask you to compare and contrast grass-fed regenerative beef from typical corn-fed grocery store beef. They're not all created equal. What can you tell us about the antibiotics, the additives, and the things people probably aren't even aware of when they see that USDA prime label. Well, whenever you look at regenerative, what does that mean? Well, that means basically from the soil up. You're not using any inputs that don't come from the soil. You go from the soil to the grass, to the cow, to the producer, to the processing center, to your fork. That's something that doesn't have chemicals associated with it, correct? Okay, if you get into a commodity, cowboy. I think we call them commodity cowboys. What everybody does, or factory farming, some people will take it like that. What you do is you're going to start that calf on grazing. You know, it'll go from grass and then at a certain point, it'll be led into a process that is fed grains. A lot of those grains these days come from the major grain companies there, you know, Bear, Monsanto, stuff like that. And so they will be fed a form of grain that has been genetically modified. Usually it is basically produced with fertilizers, pesticides, you know, as far as the grain. A lot of times within that factory farming, the cattle will be injected. It's across the board so different that you can't generalize. And it'd be a a horrible thing for the American rancher to try to generalize all of this. But a lot of that that does happen to that cow at certain points of time has nothing to do with the American rancher. It's what their protocol that they have to follow or they're out of business. Who it really is, is the global corporate grain companies and processing centers. The best thing that you can do is take that cow into a, a level they call it, you know, fat cow. You get a fat cow. You take that fat cow to harvest and it needs to be as big as it can where well, you're going to pump it full of whatever you can to get it to that weight so they can make that money, that profit, you know, that subsidized profit based on commodity consumption. And so that's where, you know, our meat has gotten as a nation is because that type of farming, as far as going the commodity route, you know, in the beginning, it wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. You can go really deep into, you know, grain and, you know, chemical uh, and GMO grain it's not even fit for human consumption, but therefore we're feeding it to our cattle and then we're feeding the cattle to ourselves. So we are consuming that unedible grain in certain ways through that process. 
when I look at regenerative farming and ranching, I work with all kinds of different regenerative farming and ranching producers. And across the board, what they do, they have the mindset that they are chemical free. And that's what it is. You will have to use some form of antibiotics on any cow, especially you have something like black hoof. It's very common in, in ranching. A lot of cattle will get that. Well, you get a regenerative farmer or rancher that basically, you know, he has to use some form of antibiotic or any time that he does have to inject that cattle with some form of chemical as far as antibiotic or, you know, it's never a steroid if you're regenerative. You know, he'll usually take that cow out and put it into the factory farming market, you know, the commodity market, hmm. and he'll never sell regenerative or a non-regenerative meat product to his consumers. Okay, this is where the big misunderstanding is. The American producer is not the one that should be judged here. What should be judged here is the global processing centers and the grain companies that perpetuate this because they have control over the distribution and the market access. And so I have ranchers like our number one, you know, one of our biggest ranchers is K&C Cattle out of uh, Austin, Texas, Cole Bolton. And, you know, he, he basically came from his, you know, in Texas, a lot of people, and especially where I came from, you know, they grew up the commodity route. But what he decided to do is like he was going to do regenerative ranching, but he was going to do grass fed and grass finished, but he's also doing grass fed and non-GMO organic grain finished. That way he protects himself from drought, from price manipulations, from input cost. So you look at all the different ways. We still grow the best beef in the world in United States and especially in Texas. But what's the difference is a lot of times whenever we're in the United States, we're eating beef that was raised in Brazil that had a stop in Mexico or a cattle that was raised in Africa had a stop somewhere else. And then they get processed in the United States and then they get to put that stamp on it, USDA. What the big deception is there is you don't even know what you're eating or where it came from, and they hide it under that guise of USDA Prime. And that has happened over a period of time. It used to mean something. But now what I'm doing with the Beef Initiative is saying, hey, glad you're the USDA. Well, we're the Beef Initiative. And we have a certain protocol that you can definitely rely on when you know exactly where your beef is coming from. And we've all shaked their hands, and you can too, either virtually because of you're coming through the beef initiative, or you can go out there if you're local and you can go out there and meet your rancher again. And that's what they have been stolen from is the factory farming, the commodity cowboy. They've gotten squeezed out. They don't have a voice anymore. They don't have a digital voice, and they don't have a market access voice. They don't have a way to where if they wanted to drop out and not get their meat processed by JBS, Cargill, Tyson, or National, they don't have access to a processing center. And so what you're seeing is we're circumventing around that and we're building microprocessing centers again. And that's the key right there. The key big bottleneck to our nutrition and to basically go to a more clean route of your food is the microprocessing centers. It's not these big $100 million processing centers that we're trying to compete with JBS. No, it's each little processing center that already used to exist in every county across the United States, just like in Texas. Mm -hmm. 
And Texas is a great place for this kind of thing. I've been considering moving to many different states. Texas is on the list, no income tax. And even though property tax can be expensive, you got the homestead exemption and you have exemptions for livestock on your land. And then I've also found several mobile butchers. So I'm not trying to get in over my head here and stuff I don't understand that's really complex and difficult to do. But, you know, if I had some land and some pigs on there, eating the grass, living a pretty natural life, I could call a mobile processor and kind of raise my own hog in a sense. And that's something that's kind of unique to Texas. And there's also policies and laws around processing that that are protected that other states don't have, right? Talk to us about those things, why the Texas culture and government and policies are different from a lot of other states where you really can't do this stuff. Yeah. What you have is you have the USDA certification in processing, right? What that allows you to do is you can sell beef nationally. And so that gives you the stamp of approval, right? So that's a certain certification if you're going to be a processor. And we'll talk about the sizes of processors all the way from mobile all the way up into, you know, 500 cow a day. So in Texas, you also have the Texas certification. And there's all a lot of other states that do this. But what it means is that you can sell in the state of Texas and you can sell basically to the surrounding states. And so you don't have to be USDA. Your Texas certification is your USDA within your region, within your state of being able to sell to. So by saying that, Texas acts like a shield against the USDA saying, hey, we approve this over here. Like my processor up in the Texas Panhandle, Justin Trammell of Panhandle Meats. See, he's a Texas certified processing center. He's a microprocessing center. We call him Avatar. He does about 30 a week. That is his capacity. By saying that, he's really only trying to feed around a 60 to 80 mile radius. That is his consumer demand that he takes care of. It's localized. It's community based. It's a food shed. And he is thriving right now. And, you know, what he did is he started up from the ground up and he built his own processing center and he went through and basically whenever he got inspected and he got passed, well, now he has precedence. He has USDA precedence and he has Texas precedence. And by doing that, that's very hard to achieve in the United States right now because what they did is all he did was mirror what we used to do in the United States. Well, what changed is we went into this big, big, big processing center where we're processing 3,000 to 5,000 cattle a day out of one processing center. Okay, that's the global market that I'm talking about. Well, they don't know how to, basically, most states don't know how to go back and scale down. That's a big problem. Texas does. And so what we've done within the Beef Initiative, we've created the Beef and It's about a two-year plan that we've been working on. And it, it had a roadmap from the very beginning, but it's the Beef Initiative Association Council. And what we're doing is we're opening the door for people in the state of Texas right now. If you want to open up a microprocessing center, we have proof of work. We have USDA precedents and we have Texas precedents from the ground up to the last inspection. We will advise you so where you can understand what you're up against, 
how to circumvent around the regulations and the inspections that are coming your way. So we're bringing education into the law itself saying, we know how to do this better than you now. And so you have to pay attention to us. And so Cole Bolton down in Central Texas, well, he's done the same thing. So he's opening his processing center this next month. And he's going to process about 250 cattle a day. Well, he's the number one supplier for the beef initiative. So our volume is about to explode tenfold to where we can actually start feeding a nation again. But by saying that, coal doesn't want to feed a nation. We will in the beginning because that's the demand right now. We want to feed the 48 states. But what he wants to do, he wants to scale back towards we're just feeding Texas and the surrounding states. And we're going to bring in other states to where we can do California. We can do Florida. We can do Washington. We can do Wyoming. We can do Oklahoma. You know, these other states, Tennessee, I have a headquarters in Tennessee and Nashville now. I have a headquarters in Colorado. So we're building out those nodes to where what we're looking at is what is our access to processing centers for the future to where like in the state of Texas, Justin and I and Cole were saying we want a processing center in every county in the state of Texas. We have 254 counties. That's pretty... (laughs) pretty big dream in here, but actually that's exactly where we came from. Every county did have a processing center. And so we're going to be basically creating a hornet's nest of processing centers this next decade. That's how we fight against this. Oh, I love it. It is so complicated. There's many layers, many steps, and you are hitting all of them and trying to just cut through all the bullshit that would stop people from accessing their food or producing food, if that's the side of the coin people want to be on. And it's just like so, so impressive. And I mean, you're really leaving a mark on on America right now. And it's just mind boggling to me how many people are out there totally ignorant that this is even needed. And then like, you're going to be right there when they do need it. And it's because you've done this work for several years. I'm curious, are regenerative agriculture systems immune or at least less affected by the fertilizer problem? Yeah. Well, let's look at today in Texas, you know, we're going through a massive drought right now. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, regenerative Farmer, rancher, animal producers, you call them grass farmers. They, they all go by different titles, so you don't want to disrespect any of them. But you look at the drought that we're suffering through. You know, there's a lot of guys out there that do regenerative, and sometimes you can call them a hobby farmer, rancher. You know, and they do. They rely on good weather. They rely on good rains. You know, they let the cattle graze. They let the cattle have a really good life. Well, maybe this year they're going to be a little bit suspect of, you know, the drought because that's going to basically squeeze them. And everybody has this thing that ranchers are rich. They're not rich, man. They're just making every cycle that they can because they love doing what they're doing. Regenerative, yes, they are vulnerable in certain ways. They're vulnerable to the elements more so than anybody, right? They're less vulnerable to the deceptions into the global chemical companies and everything. They don't have to rely on all those input costs. So therefore they have more wiggle room. But by saying that the proof of work has to be a little bit deeper than maybe you'd say a commodity cowboy that can go and knows that he's got a year's worth of grain 
and he's going to be able to use that grain to finish off his herd that year. So, you know, you got to put it in perspective once again and look at a regenerative farmer and rancher. Make sure that they had like Cole Bolton, he's got his regenerative commodities lined up. He planned ahead. He's been doing this a while. Then you got guys is like, well, I'm going to go ahead and take my cattle to the market this year, drought year. I'm going to drop out. And you see these videos. It's like, oh, my God, everybody's selling all of their cattle. Well, let's put it in perspective. That one video that was out there on the Internet, you know, for a while that everybody's been, you know, parroting about. Well, let's look at that city. Let's look at that town. Well, they usually have two auctions a week. Well, that week that they had that big line of trucks and you can look. All the trailers had two to three cattle in it. It wasn't massive cattle that were being sold off, but there was only one auction that week. We are in a drought. A lot of them probably saying, hey, I'm just not going to suffer through this drought anymore. I don't want to have to buy anymore, or I don't have market access to hay. So you have to really know the ranching industry to be able to speak to it or really to have an opinion saying, hey, this is exactly what's going on. I don't see that being a big problem right now. There's going to be some regenerative that suffers because if you have a regenerative cow that's not taken to weight, but then you're going to have people that are processing that cow and it's only a 600 weight cattle, man, that beef is not going to be good. That's not good for the regenerative market. And so that works against regenerative farming and ranching because you don't have people that are doing it. Somebody like Justin Trammell, Cole Bolton, Jason Rick up in Colorado. Scott Halk out in Colorado as well. Some of the top four of the you know guys that I'm working with currently right now. So it's such a universe within the universe of the beef industry. And that's one of the most valuable aspects of the beef initiative is that we look at everything. We look at the full spectrum. We're just not parroting the fear porn. What we're doing is like, hey, this is really what's going on. What's really going on is the American rancher has lost 40% of its ranching land and nobody's paying attention to it. What's really going on during COVID, we lived in abundance and basically JBS price fixed and manipulated prices to the tune of $500 million worth of profit. And they were on, they settled out of court for only $56 million in a fine. Well, how did that happen? Well, our consumer demand happened and we're okay with it and we don't raise enough shit about it. And the ranchers have been trying to tell us for a while now, we got a problem going on here and we need some help and we need a voice again. We need you guys to listen. Well, how do you listen? Well, you go and you shake my hand and let me sell you some beef. Let's quit relying on Costco or, or this online type of shopping boxes that you can buy now. The beef doesn't even come from the United States. Right. And so knowing where your beef comes from, knowing that you should create a new consumer demand. You eliminate all the deceptions, the conspiracies, and you go, okay, this is really what's going on in our food supply. I don't feel food insecure. I feel very empowered right now because I know exactly the truth and, and how I can move forward. Well said. And so in terms of what you guys are doing, one component is networking, regenerative ranchers that are already kind of doing it that way. And you're kind of becoming a central hub for them. And that's a beautiful thing. Are you also, seems like you are, but it, it just seems like it'd be more of a difficult task approaching these monocrop farmers who are kind of stuck in the system and showing them a better way. If they own their land, I assume once they're out of contract, they can do whatever they want to do. But are you having success in actually converting 
to this new way for people who are kind of stuck in the old way or the industrial way, I should say. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, this is a low time preference. You know, we didn't get here overnight, but we can recover a lot quicker than people think. And me being from Texas, Texas cowboy mindset and, you know, beef, of course, you know, I've really started off with, you know, let's look at the cattle rancher. Let's look at pure animal protein first. And that's a great case study. And it's a great way to showcase your proof of work, right? Because you do have a cow, an individual cow that you can piece and that you can actually really, really people can see that tangible aspect of that cow in the whole life cycle of it, the harvesting, the delivery of it, everything. And you look at mono cropping and everything, there is a movement going on. There's a lot of ways that people are looking at producing produce, you know, from vegetables and everything. You look at California and how they do things out in California, how California really is the breadbasket, you know, for produce in the United States right now. Always has been. People just don't realize it. Of course, everybody's looking at it if they have the means. And a lot of them don't want to change because they have a good life. They're doing it. And they're doing it in a very responsible way up to the point to where they can. And that's, once again, we can't generalize here. The beef initiative is about pure animal protein beef, Texas beef in the beginning, right? Now it's a national thing. It's becoming a global thing, but it really comes down to how do we do pure food again? And so, yeah, we're expanding out the knowledge base. And as far as the uh, the protocol itself, it is expanding out. And I, I think that, you know, I'm trying to get over to the Netherlands here as soon as possible. I don't know exactly when it, been. it won't probably be this year. I'm not for sure. But I, I'm going to Australia in January. And so we've got people in Australia that are wanting to be part of the beef initiative. And so we're going to have a couple of events over there. So this is something that we started in Texas. But it is going to go global because this is a global issue and we have to understand that we have to look at it. You know, it's open sourced. It's something that doesn't have any boundaries. It doesn't have any borders. But what it does, it has a mindset to get back to where we were once upon a time that actually did give us a strength to be able to give us the life that we, you and I live right now. It didn't come from basically our grandparents consuming the type of food that they did. They did it with clean produce and clean, pure animal protein. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just am so impressed with how effective you have been. It's like a lot of us, especially people like me have been complaining about there being a problem here for a while right? and just waiting for someone to come along and really light the fire. Like you have, it's just so impressive. And you've done events from Colorado to Tennessee, obviously this is all contributing to the network building, but tell people a little bit about the events that you have had and the events you plan to have. Sure. Man, they're across, and I didn't know anything about events or they're hard. I'll tell you that. Much. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting learned. But anyway, <laughs> to say that our first one was in Kerrville, you know, and it was down there in uh, central Texas and that was the first one, and it, it was a great turnout. And then we just had one in Colorado last month in July. And, you know, once again, man, everybody that came there, it was a three-day event. Nobody wanted to leave. It's like, man, a new call to action, right? A new awareness. And we had ranchers. We had Bitcoiners. We had local community. Everybody's understanding that this is based on value for value. This is like a new international lifestyle. 
Adam and I have actually talked about that. People just don't understand this is the new lifestyle that you're craving for. And so what I'm trying to get people to understand is that these conferences aren't these dry little stupid conferences where you got, you know, PowerPoints and, you know, screens. These are interactive. You're getting market access to some intelligence that you can't really find and you create relationships at these places. And so next month in Georgia at White Oak Pastures with Will Harris, mm -hmm. I mean, he's one of the biggest, greatest stories of turning around a farm and a ranch to a regenerative model again. His family ranch is over 150 years old that was regenerative, but then it went the commodity cowboy route. But then he took it and he got it back to regenerative. He was the first person to sell grass-fed beef to Whole Foods before Old Bezos bought him out. Ah, cool. And so he has proof of work. He stewards his land and his animals on his own. He has that vertical integration. So we're bringing everybody out to Georgia and say, come witness yourself how you can create at least your, your basically change your consumer demand, have a new market access. Maybe you want to learn about the heritage woman and how she used to prepare for the family, the heritage family. How do they go about this? And we're bringing in medical. We're going to have people from the medical field talk about it. We're going to have a lot of different aspects at these events that I think people are yearning for. They just don't realize that they're out there because my events are you're pretty small. It's 100 people or less. So, you know, we're selling tickets right now to Georgia. So I encourage everybody, you know, to go. I mean, if I was you listening out there and you wanted to change your lifestyle in a way when it came around food, in a new form of food intelligence, I would, and this is just not me selling this because I'm not, I'm being very honest and transparent. This is what you need to point your compass to because it's important and you can get rid of a lot of the anxieties that a lot of people are feeling. And you can say, Hey, I'm going to empower my family again. Cause you, a lot of people don't feel empowered out there right now. And so I'm doing that event in Georgia in September and then what I'm also doing, I, I spoke of Justin Trammell of Panhandle Meats. What we're going to do in Canyon, Texas, where I grew up, there's a Panhandle Plains Museum here. Well, he just opened up his processing center. Well, also, we're doing education within the Beef Initiative. We're going to have a heritage and food event in Canyon, Texas. One thing we're going to do is like, hey, you want to learn about processing? come to Canyon, Texas, and we'll put you on the list as far as who we're going to consult this next year. We're going to talk about food sheds, local community-based processing centers, how to build out your community food programs, kind of like what the Four Sixes Ranches did. We're going to bring these little micro summits and events everywhere across the world, and that's what I'm going to start really kicking off in October. And then I've been invited to Nashville and we might be talking to an association there. I'm not going to announce it right now. But then, we're, of course, we're going to have two events in Australia. And then maybe I'll get to Amsterdam. And then I know for a fact next year we're going to have one of our biggest kickoff year events. It's going to be in Nashville. Probably be springtime of 2023. One thing that I am doing in Central Texas in November is we're going to have a big old cowboy freaking steak dinner. We're going to have a big old cowboy party <laughs> and kind of close out the year and say, we've done a lot of good work and this is what we're going to do moving forward. So we're going to invite everybody to that too. Right on. Just always so busy. And I've been looking at that Alabama event because two of the hands I'd like to shake most are you and Adam and you'll both be there. Oh, you um, mean in Georgia? It was Georgia. Or, yes. Oh, Georgia. Yes. My mistake. My no mistake. Problem. 
Uh, and I know it's coming up really soon. So if I was going to fly out there, I got to make a decision quite quickly. But any plans to make it out to California? Make it easy on me? Yeah, I'm talking with some guys right now and we're putting together something in California. I've got a place to say, just got to get out there. We got to look at the calendar and yeah, I'm, I'm, I've told everybody a little bit about who I am. You know, I have, I have a lifestyle now. It's not because I'm rich. I'm not a rich man. I liquidated my life about three years ago to do this. I didn't start off with a lot of capital. What I started out was a lot of grit and a lot of know-how and a lot of intestinal fortitude. And I said, well, in this year, I said, well, I, for the next two years, I'll go anywhere in the world and I will not stop until I've gone everywhere to build this out. And it's starting to happen on that scale. So, you know, I've got plans of visiting Idaho in October as well. They want me back in South Carolina. I'd love to come out to California. So, on the Beef Initiative website, I've paid for everything on my own. I'm self-funded. I uh, don't have VC money, never will. That's not what this is about. This is grass-fed and grassroots. And so I've got kind of a donation page. I kind of do the value for value, like time, talent, and treasure, like Adam does. Yes. You know, he's kind of really encouraged me to do that because it's kind of hard to ask, right? And I've never been one to do that, but we're building out basically a roadmap and, you know, we're asking people, Hey, do you believe in what we're doing? Do you find this valuable? You know, go to the beef initiative and donate, you know, donate for some gas, whatever it is that you feel that is valuable. And so I'll start moving forward with that. And the more that people kind of come on board and that want to help out, maybe they can't go one to one of these events, but they want to, you know, they want to help out, you know, I'm changing my podcast up to where. It's going to be very insightful. Once a week, it's going to be a long podcast. I'm going to talk about people who are contributing and what we're doing and where we're going. And it's going to become very interactive. We're doing an audio docu-series right now to where we're telling the story of when I was on the road and we're breaking it up where it's kind of like Orson Welles, but it's <laughs> entertainment, but it's also educational. So we're doing a lot, but we're doing this without any revenue. And it's amazing how far we've gotten so far, but I, I'll be the first to be, I've driven my damn pickup to the ground and, you know, I'm pretty much basically stay homeless because I'm on the road all the time, but I want to come meet everybody. I want to shake the rancher's hand. I want to build out these protocols to where these communities can start building locally so we can broadcast globally. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Just so impressive, man. And I know that everybody's always probably like, what about this? What about that? But I, I got to ask, do you have any plans in the beef initiative to expand to pork and chicken? Because some of these boxes you can get, you know, mm -hmm. they're often multifaceted with the, these at least three various proteins. Yeah, and that goes to scale, right? And you, you look at these other programs that have that. Well, that's commodity-based crap, and, and unless you know you're going through a regenerative platform or anything. Right. Once again, it goes to scale, right? It goes to basically consumer demand. Basically, creates that scale, and that's what people need to understand. Of course, we will bring. We'll bring lamb. We'll bring yak. We'll bring bison. We'll bring pork, fowl. It doesn't matter what it is. It's up to the consumer demand and how we can actually project that out, how to plan that out, and how to leverage the producer in a way that is beneficial to the producer instead of a commodity-based leverage in which they're being exploited. 
So as we move forward, this is, once again, this is about pure, clean animal protein and pure, clean produce. Mm -hmm. Whatever we can put into this model that we've created within the Beef Initiative, you damn right we're going to do it because that's going to basically compete with the people that are trying to nutritionally starve us. Yes. Good to hear. Good to hear. And I know I got to let you go, but I just want to make sure we touched on everything in terms of the roadmap or ways that people can help. And of course, the website is beefinitiative.com. You also got social media links. Give them everything you can that, that's important for them to hear before we call it in. You bet. I mean, the first most important place to go is, you know, the beefinitiative.com, beefinitiative.com. You can uh, go there to buy your beef. You can go there to, you know, access the newsletter. You can go there to basically make a donation. We just now launched, and I haven't told anybody, so everybody on the shows get to hear it first. We have a subscription now to where you can get beef delivered once a month. And so you can secure your beef supply. You can secure it for the next year, two years, three years, whatever it is. Once you get that locked in, you're locked into a subscription service that's going to deliver beef to your door, the best beef in the world. So everything that you want to really kind of wrap your head around is beefinitiative.com. Twitter, of course, I'm at Modern T Man. And then our Beef Initiative Twitter handle is at Beef Initiative. And then my Substack, which is from the beginning, the harvest of deception is texasslim.substack.com. And then if you want to see the media side of things on Twitter, it's at TX Slim Media. And we're just kicking that off as well. Right on. Well, you are an inspiration, an American hero, and a real man of genius, to use the Bud Light commercial <laughs> phrase. But this has been a real pleasure. I'm super fortunate you were willing to come talk to me today. I'm happy to lend uh, the little platform I have to such important stuff. So very cool. And uh, I hope to catch you in California, man, but keep doing what you do and take care. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. I thank everybody for listening. You know, let's take some steps in the right direction and we don't have to ask permission anymore. So, you know, that's the biggest message. We have the power to do whatever the hell we want to. And that's the most important thing these days. Amen. I love it. Have a good one. All right, man. Take care. Yeehaw, Hireside Chatters. Texas Slim letting us know the situation and doing the hard work to build the solution. I really, really loved it, though I'm sure some people feel like I'm hitting them over the head with food-themed episodes. And I thought Dr. Lara was really amazing with the history of food control and the agenda run through food science, because he's a highly credentialed food scientist, so he has his realm. And Texas Slim is out there going above and beyond to provide Americans with the options they don't even know they need or that they're losing. Yes, we have done interviews with ranchers and farmers that are kind of about the same thing, but now we're talking to a real go-getter who is helping to give these guys the tools and education they need to move to direct-to-consumer and expand the grass-fed regenerative model. And when you check out beefinitiative.com, you can know that they ship coast to coast, so any American listener can take advantage. I know some of our previous rancher interviews were much more regional, so when people would get really motivated hearing the interview, they couldn't go to that direct person. But this is different. Check out Slim's website and get a box of high-quality meat. I've been through a bunch of these subscription boxes, to tell you the truth, and I really like their options here. 
They source from several Texas and Midwestern ranches. But then you also have a lot of choice when it comes to what you want, and it's totally a good price. Here's just an example. Two New York strips, two filet mignons, a three and a half pound roast, two Denver steaks, one tenderized two pound round steak, four chuck eye steaks, and five one pound packs of ground beef, and five pounds of ribs. All for $165. Like, to me, that is a good deal. That is about 12 meals for my wife and I when you count the roast is two, five pounds of ribs is two, five pounds of ground beef might even be three. You go to the farmer's market, you get your vegetables, and you're all set. You don't have to be some kind of Michelin star chef to grill some meat and roast some vegetables. Extra points if you roast your own vegetables, too. And maybe this is not the most epic stuff we've talked about, but to rebuild a strong foundation in this country, first you have to be aware that it's needed. So that's already a minority of us, right? The conspiracy folks, let's call it 30% of people. That's probably generous, but a third. Right there, we're already so far behind that we really need all of us in that minority to make sure that we're eating clean and eating local and supporting the infrastructure that allows for that. Enough with the big chain conglomerates. We know they're feeding us bullshit. We know they're taking our local dollar out of circulation. We know they're paying people in our community a dog shit wage. Well, it's time we put our foot down. We gotta do more than just bitch online about the World Economic Forum. This is a really practical thing you can do. Dedicate yourself to this one thing. It does make a difference in your life and the strength of your food supply and your health. And it takes a few more dollars out of the food tech corporate cabal. They tell us what they want to do. Are we just going to roll over and let them do it? But I did see this I was going to mention. It is a little bit of good news. I saw this headline from the Daily Mail, but it says, Fake meat fail? Beyond meat reels as sales slow and stock plummets with an analyst saying that they are burning through cash and may go bankrupt as partnerships with McDonald's and Taco Bell don't pan out. So, good. I mean, if we go back to the interview with Dr. Lara, the CEO of Impossible Foods said they intend to send red meat producers into a, quote, death spiral. So, fuck you, dude. But again, this just means impossible meats weren't working for fast food customers. Well, you shouldn't be there anyway. The regular stuff they're selling isn't much closer to meat either, you know? But Dr. Frederic Lara said several times this is their plan, but that's not to say it will be successful. So stuff like this is encouraging to hear. Interviews like today's really inspire me as well. It is important to not have a defeatist mindset, but recognize the problems and the challenges and then go after them. If they can get things done using a problem reaction solution model, so can we. So big thanks to Texas Slim for stepping up and to Adam Curry for bringing Slim up on no agenda as often as he has, or I'd have no idea. And I did bring up moving again on this one. I already made the decision to knock that off. It's getting a bit repetitive. It'll happen when it happens, but I already had this one recorded, and I also do appreciate some of the culture in Texas regarding food and thought it was worth bringing up. Here's another little story as an example. 
My wife and I are friends with a couple who moved from here out to Texas recently, and when we were doing our big road trip, we stopped in to hang with them for the weekend, see their new house and everything. And we went to a place for breakfast that just happened to have a bunch of vendors set up as well. And we saw a meat cart and started talking to the woman about their family farm, totally regenerative, grass-fed and finished. And my buddy needed some eggs, which they also sold at this cart. But they also had a sign that said if you buy a tri-tip, then you get a free carton of eggs. So, boom, let's just do that. Well, she gave my man four free cartons of eggs. And they don't even have to be refrigerated because they still have the bloom on them, which is also just interesting. If you ever wondered why some eggs need to be refrigerated and some don't, they come out of the chicken with a film on them that protects them from that need for temperature control. I had no idea. But the whole thing was cool. So high quality food, talking to the producer, getting a bonus just for having a good conversation. It was a memorable exchange and it was very Texas. I definitely walked away thinking, I want to be a part of this. If this was going on right down the street from where I bought a new house, I would not be disappointed. Plus, Texas gives you tax breaks for animals on your property, literally paying citizens to keep the food supply strong and decentralized. That's great. I wish it wasn't so hot and so drought-stricken and so archaic about marijuana. But the food aspect of the culture and stories like the one I just told are a beautiful thing. Also, in the Plus Show, one of the things we talked about was the three-day bone broth fast inspired by Dr. Kerr. And if you saw my social media at all this week, you know that I actually started that three days ago. So I had an early dinner on Monday, and then Tuesday and Wednesday did not eat anything except for bone broth and drinking some water. But today I did wake up not feeling so great allergy-wise, and so I kind of just said fuck it. The point was to feel amazing, and I felt better on the second day of the fast than I did today. So I woke up and I did have some eggs with the family, but it's really, to me, about no sugar, no carbs, and nothing artificial. And it probably does make for a good reset. I definitely had an easier time than I expected. If you were considering such a thing, I was barely hungry. The harder part was just being bored without eating for two days. But I think going without everything for that little while will make it much easier to appreciate small meals and exercise more portion control. But we'll see. So I did about 60 hours is how far I made it, a bit shy of the full 72, but I tried. Discipline has never really been my strong suit, and had I woke up today feeling energized and breathing all right, I would have probably cruised right on through today as well. But something really, really triggered those allergies. Maybe I smoked some weed with pesticides on it yesterday. Another thing I gotta be better about. But Dr. Kerr has seen some amazing results converting families from the typical American diet to an all-organic and grass-fed one. Really impressive. And other things we talked about today in the Plus Show for Plus members would be issues with analysis paralysis and the right ways to think about food, the Four Sixes Ranch school lunch success story, the political takeover of school lunches and the attack on kids, grooming and social engineering through Hollywood and, quote, the science, the reasons why they're nutritionally starving us, the truth about food delivery apps, the way the conventional system enslaves the modern farmer, 
We also talked about problems with the farm equipment manufacturing corporations and how to revitalize soil and keep it healthy. Become a Plus member if you like the way I do a show and you want to hear it in full. We also talked about the value for value model and this event that they're doing actually this weekend, so I'm clearly not going to be going there, but it is in Georgia. Texas Slim and Adam Curry will be there. It's at Wild Oak Pastures, and it's all weekend, and you can get your tickets at beefinitiative.com. But I have great respect for the value for value model in contrast to the sponsorship advertising model that has taken over podcasting. But neither of those models, advertising, it's pretty clear why it doesn't work around here, but value for value really doesn't work for the way I have the show structured either. Because I did try it first. And big donations came with guest recommendations attached, and it started to feel dirty. I'm relying on a few high-dollar contributors, and when I don't interview the list of guests they give me, then the donations go away, and now I'm stuck. It was feeling a bit dirty, and it was feeling like I wasn't as independent as I sought out to be. It kind of felt like people were buying guest spots, and we don't want that. But a show like No Agenda doesn't have to worry about such a thing because of their format. Either way, a tip of my hat to what they do. We have the 8 bucks a month subscription model and it does me just fine. My attitude is really any way you figure out how to do it ad and sponsorship free, I think is a win. But of course, in higher side news, we got that event with the Gramerica guys at Mount Shasta in February. Go to contactatthecabin.com for more details. This event is called Magic on the Mountain. But if you want to hang out with me for four days and do some hiking and smoking and all that, this is the place to be. Plus, we're going to drink that sweet, sweet Shasta water. And on the meetups calendar, we did see one more event go up on top of the two I mentioned last time. So for the rest of September, we have this weekend, September 17th, the Flathead Lake meetup in Lakeside, Montana. There will be a higher side sign written out on a poster under one of the pavilions, and you can all hang out there and swim if it's hot or just enjoy the views. Then on September 24th, we have the Philadelphia Clark Park meetup in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Another poster will be present, and there are a lot of good local food and bars right around there. So you can meet up at the park itself and then decide if you want to carry it on over to some other place. And then freshly minted, we have the Salida Moonlight Pizza meetup in Salida, Colorado at Moonlight Pizza and Brew Pub. So if you're near any of those areas, hop on the calendar and RSVP, let them know they won't be there alone, and meet some new friends. And then if you're not in any of those areas, just make an event of your own. But I am happy with this one, you know? Treat yourself to something from the Beef Initiative website. Give your parents some good steaks or something. How many of us have parents that don't really eat that well? They're still doing the Marie calendars. They're doing the Hamburger Helper. They were sold a bag of goods through the 90s with all this food bullshit, and we gotta set the record straight and send them some good quality stuff. I recently bought a t-shirt just to support the venture. Not that I need any more t-shirts with all the higher side clothing stuff that I have, but I wanted to do something to represent, and I get my meat already from Sunrise Ranch. But it's all good. I wanted to make sure we highlighted an option that was completely nationwide, and that we could get a 
boots on the ground report, to use a no agenda phrase, as to what's really happening in the food sector and how we're going to make it better. So I hope you dug it, but I'm getting out of here. Your move nutritional starvers, factory food facilitators, and insect protein injectors. Your fucking Sometimes when I get down, I eat a bunch of corporate junk. Processed stuff that makes you fat. Yeah, it's a weak and sickly people making industry. Don't Technology, and every now and then I try to quit and leave it be, but it's too hard to turn it off. It's getting worse, and yet it's learning. It's learning. is another show complete remember as much as you enjoyed this which is just the free first hour i hope you'll become a plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews you also can engage with other plus members in the comments and the forums and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions i get which is where can i find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show well they are free downloads for plus members too and without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free 7-day trial because I'm just that confident. 
There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check, mail to the P.O. Box, and I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.